the shore and dove in. One of these boys, his name was Truth, and the other boy, his name was Lies. And as they were playing in the water together, Truth and Lies were swimming back and forth, enjoying their time, when all of a sudden, Lies decided to pull Truth out and say, hey, let's play a game together. And Truth said, okay, that sounds good. So what game do you want to play? And Lies said, well, let's just see who can hold their breath the longest underwater. And Truth said, I'm in. So on the count of three, one, two, three, Truth went under the water holding his breath, but Lies did not. Instead, Lies got out of the water. He took his clothes and Truth's clothes and went home. Well, Truth was holding his breath underwater, so he didn't see any of this happen. He finally got up out of the pond, and he looked around. He realized Lies was gone and that Lies had taken his clothes, and he was upset. So he got out of the water, walked buck naked through town, and knocked on Lies' door. Lies answered the door fully clothed, and Truth said, what are you doing? Why did you leave me at the pond? And, and Lies said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been here all day playing video games. And Truth was like, you're lying, and you're wearing my clothes. And so they got into this argument that just got more and more heated. It spilled out into the street, so much so that the neighbors started to come around and wonder what is going on. And they gathered around listening to lies, argue with truth, and they had a decision to make. Who were they going to believe, naked truth or lies wearing truth's clothes? So, ah, you guys got that one. So that is the essence. That story represents the essence of what this series is all about. For those of you who missed last week, we're in the midst of a series that we've entitled Creed. And Creed is a series that's designed to look at God's essential truth, the essential beliefs we have about our faith. Creed, if you're not familiar with the word, actually means a formalized confession of faith. Creeds are how Christians in the early days of the church were able to articulate what they believed. Creeds were how Christians in the early days of the church we're able to distinguish truth from lies dressed like truth. And the earliest of these creeds was written at about 120 to 140 AD, and it was called the Apostles' Creed, which is going to be the framework of how we're going to teach this series. And specifically today, last week we talked about, uh, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And this week, we're going to focus on Jesus and what it is that makes Christianity unique. Because one of the things that makes the Christian faith unique is that Christianity is not as much built upon a set of beliefs as it is upon a very specific person and a specific act in history. Christianity is not built on beliefs as much as it's built on Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what leads us into week two of our Creed series today. Now, before we dive in, I want to share three things. Number one, this is, again, for those of you who missed last week, this is an Awaken Q&A series. And what that means is if during the course of the teaching there are any questions, comments, or thoughts you have, I want you to feel free to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com, and we'll take some time to address them at the end of our time. The, the Awaken Q&A will be on every slide that you'll see. Secondly, I want to thank all of you 
Because the way we started this year was we talked about not only how to hear from God, but where we believe God is leading our church. And we talked about the idea of church plan 2020. And I wanted to say, I didn't want to be neglectful. I want to say thank you all for those of you who've been faithful in praying with us alongside your pastors. I want to thank you for those of you who have posted thoughts on the board. I read them. I love one of the things I get most excited about doing every pastor's meeting and is to go over there and to see what has been shared and what God is saying to our people. So I want to take a moment and thank you for that. And finally, I want to say that our goal with this series is not simply to teach through the Apostles' Creed, but to learn it. And so with that, I want you all to recite after me the Apostles' Creed as we have learned it thus far. So it begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Can you repeat that? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And this week, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Amen. Jesus Christ. He is considered to be the most influential person of all time. He is the most famous person in history. You'd be hard-pressed to travel the world and find someone who has not heard of who Jesus Christ is. He is the most important religious figure who has ever lived. For many, Jesus is beloved, admired, and worshipped. For others, Jesus has been hated, despised, and rejected. And then everyone else, Jesus can be dismissed, ignored, and disregarded. Put simply, not everyone agrees on who Jesus is, but it's really difficult to be neutral about him. And that's the way he has always been. Did you catch that? That's the way Jesus has always been controversial. In fact, Jesus had the same problem about what people thought about him even when he was still alive. In the book of Mark, chapter 8, uh, the author shares these, these words. Jesus and his followers went to the towns around Caesarea Philippi. And while they were traveling, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. Isn't that a strange passage? Even while Jesus was alive, people weren't sure of who he was. That alone makes Jesus an interesting figure, does it not? Because, I mean, no one ever comes up to me and says, who are you, Frank? Are you Richard? No, you're not tall enough to be Richard. Who are you, Frank? Are you JT? No, you got more hair on your head and less on your chest, so you can't be JT. That's my brother-in-law. Love him. <laughs> so, no, right? This type of thing doesn't happen to me, and it doesn't happen to you either. No one comes up to you and says, hey, who are you? Are you someone else? That just doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen with historical figures either. No one walks around saying, who was Einstein really? Like, maybe he wasn't this brilliant genius scientist, right? Who was George Washington really? Who was Sir Isaac Newton really? We know who they are. They're defined by their lives and the things that they do. But Jesus, people argue about who Jesus is all the time. People question who Jesus was all the time. Why? 
Because your answer to the question of who Jesus is will shape your life. And that is true of Jesus and no other figure in history. In the days of the early church, it was the same way. The way people thought about and defined Jesus defined their lives. And so, as a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, actually post-Jesus' day, in the days of the early church, there were actually factions that broke off defined by who they believed Jesus was. The Ebionites believed that Jesus was simply a very obedient Jewish man who stumbled into becoming the Messiah. Docetism was a belief that emphasized how Jesus was not really a man, but he certainly seemed like he was one, and only seemed to suffer and die, but he didn't actually do so. Arianism stated that Christ was of God. There's something more than human about him, but he was not equal to God. Gnostics believed they had this special knowledge and didn't want to associate with the material things of this world, so they were willing to accept Jesus as spirit, as God, but not as flesh, and didn't, have, didn't believe that he could be born of a human being, a human mother. And so it's because of these differing beliefs about Jesus and their understanding of how important it is to get right who Jesus is that the church fathers wrote into the Apostles' Creed these words. They wrote it to assert his identity. And they wrote, And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Those are words loaded with meaning and loaded with power. So we're going to break this down into two parts, and we'll begin with the first part. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. That is the essence of this first idea. That declaration is at the heart of the Christian faith, that not only was Jesus God's only begotten son, but that Jesus is God. That idea is fought over, uh, even today, by many people who cannot or will not accept Jesus as God, and that's fine. People are going to believe what they're going to believe, and my, my goal this morning is not to argue about which belief is right. I simply want to say, when it talks about this idea of Jesus being God, is regardless of what you might believe, or regardless of what the world might believe, regardless of what people may believe about Jesus, there's no question that Jesus saw himself as God, and that matters. I love how C.S. Lewis framed this dilemma. C.S. Lewis, for those of you who might know, he's the author of The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and many other books. He was a Christian man who once shared these words. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something 
worst. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Right? Whoever the world or people might say about Jesus, or whoever or whatever this world might think Jesus is, it is clear that Jesus himself viewed himself as God. In John chapter 8, this is what Jesus shares with a large Jewish crowd. He says, your father Abraham, that's Abraham of the Old Testament, Abraham that lived thousand plus years before Jesus did, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Old Testament, uh, God told Moses, this is a familiar story, God told Moses, I want you to go and free the people of Israel from Egypt, right? Let my people go. You guys, let me know that story, right? So Moses goes in, but before he does, he questions God, and he's like, God, these Israelites are going to ask me, who sent me? And God said, tell them, I sent you, right? And, God, and Moses says, well, what's a way that I can convince them of them? Maybe a way I can convince them is if you tell me your name. And God said, okay, here's my name. I am is my name. And so when Jesus makes this declaration, he's basically giving himself God's name. There's no question that he's declaring himself the same as God. And that's why the people reacted the way they did. They picked up stones to throw at him because who can be this obnoxious as to claim himself to be God? In John 10, Jesus again says, the Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him because they understood maybe what we do not. Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Clearly, Jesus saw himself as not merely the Son of God, but as God himself. Now, whether that not that's true for us, we can debate. Right? But the, what is clear is that Jesus saw himself this way, and his closest friends and his closest followers believed the same thing. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote about how Jesus is the living word of God, the eternal word of God become flesh. Another disciple, Paul, writes the same thing in the book of Titus when he says, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. So in the end, C.S. Lewis is correct. Jesus claimed to be God. So if you're going to accept or embrace Jesus, whatever you think about Jesus, don't come up with this sidebar that says, well, Jesus, it was instead, I can love Jesus because he was a great moral teacher, and that's all that he was, because Jesus did not leave that option open to us. You either accept him for who he says he was, or you reject him for based on what he says he was. Anything else doesn't make sense. So in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit 
and born of the Virgin Mary. So Larry King uh, is one of the most famous talk show hosts who's uh, ever, and he was once asked, if you could select one person in all of history to interview and ask that person one question, what would you ask them? And Larry King's response was interesting because he was not a Christian as far as we know. But he said that he would want to interview Jesus. And the question he would ask is whether or not Jesus was virgin born. And when he was asked, well, why would you ask that question? Larry King responded, because the answer to that question will define history. Larry King recognizes what a lot of people in this world don't or maybe don't want to. You know, we grow up in a culture that uh, teaches us not to believe in impossible things, even though, quote-unquote, impossible things happen all the time. I don't want to waste, so when we talk about this idea of whether or not Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, I didn't want to come at it this morning from the direction of proving to you that Jesus did. Because that's a crazy idea, isn't it? The idea that Jesus was born of a virgin, that his daddy was the Holy Spirit. Uh, There are arguments and there are reasons why we should embrace that. But my goal this morning in this part is not to convince you that it happened. Instead, I want to convince you of the idea, I want to talk to you about why it had to be this way. Why it had to be this way. Why Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The first reason was so that Jesus could fulfill prophecy. 800 plus years before Jesus was ever born, God inspired Isaiah to write these words in the Bible. He said, therefore the Lord himself, this is God, will give you a sign, talking about the Messiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel translated means God with us. That's the idea. That someday the Messiah will come. He will be with you and he shall be born of a virgin. God said it was going to happen this way. And so, yes, Jesus needed to be born of a virgin in order to fulfill what God had said. That's only one reason, though. Because God didn't have to tell Isaiah to say that 800 years before. But here's the second reason why Jesus had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's because Jesus, it was to give Jesus authority. To give Jesus authority. So God has to be the father of Jesus. Why? Because in that time period, in the time period when Jesus was born, who your daddy is decides what your occupation is going to be and what your family business is. So in Jesus' day, if your dad was a farmer, your family was a family of farmers, and the oldest son had to take over the family business. That's just the way things were done. If you're the oldest son, you're going into your father's business. There were no contracts. There were no laws. There were no leases and deeds. It was just simply known that if the dad is a farmer, this is, as my oldest son, this is what you're going to do. And most likely, that's what the rest of the family is going to do as well. If your dad was a tailor, then the oldest son was going to be a tailor. And most likely, the rest of the family was going to work as tailors too. So with that in mind, I want you to read these verses with me. Luke chapter 1 verse 35. This is what the Holy Spirit said to Mary before she gave birth to Jesus. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's like 
Bible language for you guys are going to come together, right? And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. So not the son of a farmer, not the son of a tailor. Jesus was born the son of God. And when Jesus accepted that title, it meant that Jesus was given the legal authority to act on God's behalf. And that legal authority validated all of the ministry Jesus did thereafter. It needed to happen that way for Jesus to have the authority to act as the son of God. So to fulfill prophecy to be given legal authority. And finally, there's the blood issue. So here's the interesting thing about the blood issue. For those of you who like to dive in and think about things a little more deeply, here's the question with the blood issue is, well, if I understand the Bible right, everyone is born with a sin nature because of Adam and Eve when they fell. And so if we're all born into a sin nature, and that means we're sinful, sinners in a sense, even after we've been born, then how could Jesus being born of a human, have his blood so pure and perfect and sin-free that he could die for us? That's the essential question, right? I wrote it more simply. How can the blood of Jesus be pure enough to redeem mankind if the blood of every human born is already tainted with sin? That's an interesting question, isn't it? So most of you might be familiar with a book called Gray's Anatomy, if for over 150 years, Gray's Anatomy has been the standard for medical textbooks. And if you read Gray's Anatomy under the section called Human Life, the book shares that there is this an established physiological fact that the mother's blood never mixes with the fetus unless there's a miscarriage or unless there's an abortion. Biologically, what happens is the umbilical cord, I know, sorry to if you guys feel queasy about this stuff, but the umbilical cord is connected to the placenta, which keeps the baby isolated from the mother. And so the placental membrane separates the maternal blood, the mom's blood, from the fetus's blood, from the baby's blood. So I don't know how many of you knew that strange fact, but here's what it means and why it's important for Jesus. Physiologically, biologically today, right, it is the father who provides all of the necessary elements for the baby to produce blood, and only the father, in a natural childbirth, right? Mary's blood never mixed with baby Jesus, and that means the sin, her sin, sin nature never passed to the son, because it's the father, God's Holy Spirit, who provides all the necessary elements for blood in a baby. That's the reason why Jesus' blood could redeem us because it was never tainted by sin. Mark 14, Jesus declares, and he said to them, this is my blood poured out for many, sealing the covenant between God and his people. The Bible is a book of blood. Blood matters. And in Jesus' case, in order to be, in order for his blood to redeem us, it needed to be pure and sin-free, and it required the conception conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, in order for that to happen. So in Christian theology, the technical term for this idea that Jesus is both fully God and fully human is uh, a term called hypostatic union. And basically what hypostatic union means is that in Jesus both the divine and human natures stand together. Jesus is both 
fully God and he is fully man. Not a mixing of the two. It's not like blue and yellow make green, right? They're both equal. Blue and yellow stand distinct and yet united together. So Jesus is both fully God, fully man, inseparably united, but unconfused in one person forever. That is who Jesus is. So Origen of Alexandria was a Christian theologian who lived, I think he was born in 180 sometime A.D., and uh, he was tried once to illustrate how this could work, because that's a really confusing idea. How can Jesus be fully God, but also fully man? And here's the image that he used. So he talks about that there's a piece of iron that's been forged in a forge until it's glowing white. Can you see that? So it's a piece of iron that's been heated until it is glowing fire. So if you were to touch this piece of iron, you would not only feel the power and the strength of iron, but you'd also feel the power and strength of fire. It is both. It is fire and it is iron. So in the same way, Jesus was fully human, nothing but purified iron, but so permeated with divine fire that every part of his humanity is filled with divine energy. That's the illustration that Origen used to share how Jesus could be fully man and fully God. Human, but every essence, every pore, every piece of him filled with holy divine fire. I thought that was a cool image to have. This is what it means to believe. And in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So, um, Let's do this. Uh, I want to tackle some Q&A time. So, and I know there's a lot of different roads this could have gone down. I tried to prepare for this morning's Q&A, and I'm like, I can't even do that. So if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts regarding what we shared today, I want you to go ahead and text those to me at awakenqna at gmail.com. And as you're doing that, I want to close with this idea. I know today... And this morning has been filled with a lot of technical ideas. And I know there's some of you who really don't like sermons like that, that just get really technical and into details and into the mundane. And if that's you, I just want to start off by saying I apologize. I'm sorry. I started this morning with the goal of saying, and with the, not only the goal of this morning, but the goal of this series is to distinguish truth from lies dressed like truth. And sometimes the best way to do that is to get a little bit technical, to dive into the details and the weeds. But there's also another reason why I was a little bit more technical with you this morning than typically. And that reason is how many of you have, uh, have gone to Walmart and seen those missing kids posters? Do you know what I'm talking about? They're usually by the water fountain. You look up and you see these missing kids. Do you know when, I don't know if, how many of you have read them, and you don't have to not raise your hand or anything and say, oh, I've never seen that. But... Um, Basically, over the water fountains in Walmart, there's these missing person posters. And when you read them, what you find is the family who are missing their kid give not only the police, but give to us as detailed a description as they can of their missing child. And they even include some strange details that most of us wouldn't know, like he's got a tattoo on his butt, right? Or he was wearing pineapple socks when they disappeared because they don't know whether or not it might be that detail that helps them get found. Does that make sense? 
So share as many details as possible of what my child looked like when they disappeared, hoping that some detail will trigger someone's recognition so they might find my son. Well, if you understand that concept, if you understand that idea, that's what we did this morning. Back in the days of the first century, and even in the hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus was born, there were no cameras, there was no streaming video, there was no Facebook or, or, or oh my gosh, Snap to, uh, to be able to post your videos on, right? I know, I try to be so cool, but really, I'm so retro. So anyway... If Jesus showed up today in the 21st century and we wanted to tell someone a thousand years from now how to recognize him, it's pretty easy, right? We take a video, we take a picture and say, that's what he looks like. Well, they didn't have that 2,000 years ago or 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 years ago. All they had was a written word. And so what they did, what the ancients did and what the early church did is they wrote down clues to give you an idea of what it would look like when the Messiah showed up and then after he did, here are the clues that you might know how to recognize that he is the one we've been waiting for. And that's why we went into these details today, because these are the clues that the ancients left us to say, I know you're going to question. Everybody questions Jesus. He was questioned while he was still alive. But when you question and you're trying to decide what is true or what is the distinguish between truth and lies dressed like truth, here are the clues you look for, and that'll tell you whether or not Jesus is true and whether or not he should be believed. And the reason why they did that is to say that if you know what is true, and you can remove that question from the table of, did Jesus believe he was God and say that he was? And is there evidence to believe that he was? Then the only question that should be left is, will you believe? And that is the real question facing the world today. Amen? All right. Let's tackle any questions, comments, or thoughts that you guys might have. All right. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Obviously, we can't know how Mary was impregnated. Uh-oh. I don't like where this is going. But I don't think it was a coming together like people do, as you mentioned. No, I agree with you. I, uh, I was just saying that's the biblical language for saying the two came together and were one. So I do believe that essence is true. So it might not have been physically, but the idea, even from the days of the book of Genesis, right, that man and woman shall come together and there will be one flesh. And I think in the same way, the spirit joined with Mary in such a way that they were one so that Jesus might be conceived. So that was what I meant by it, but I appreciate the clarification. So, because God was fully human, as well as fully God, that wouldn't sin be a part of his human side, as all other humans do? So yes, so great question. That's the question I tried to tackle earlier with the blood issue. And maybe you wrote this before I talked about the blood issue. Because biologically, Mary was the human in the equation, and her blood never mixes with the babies. Jesus never received, right, the sin nature through Mary. So the, where his blood came from was the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was never tainted by sin, so he never carried the sin nature. And he is unique in that. 
So I just thought it was really cool. God could have just said it that you don't have to understand it. Just know that it happened. But the fact that science even supports that idea, I think it's just really cool how God designed it from the beginning to be that way. Like a proof in geometry, is this like a proof that Jesus is God? Okay, first of all, who brings geometry? Yeah, exactly. Who brings geometry to church, right? That's wrong. And whoever writes this, you need to be cast out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, all right, so geometry, proofs, what was, okay, okay, so, that's, so uh, I, you know, I think that's a great way of thinking about it, that uh, if I understand proofs rightly, that a proof is a way that you take an equation and say that this equation is correct based on how we piece the formula together, right? And in that sense, I'd say yes. What the ancients, what the scriptures, what the early church fathers, what they wrote and what the Bible gives us today are clues that point to who God is and who Jesus is. And at that point, if the clues are clear enough, because God is mysterious, right? And what does he say? He says that in, in the book of Acts 17, he says, he is not far from any of us, though we might seek for him and grope after him. God wants us to seek after him. And if that seems weird to you, then just think about any other relationship that you're in, right? In every relationship, especially the romantic ones, each of the, each part, can I say this rightly? So each part of that relationship wants to be pursued. With my wife, she wants me to pursue her and to know her. In the same way, I want her to know me. Pursuit is an essential part of relationship. And so in the same way, God says, if we're going to have a relationship, there needs to be a bit of pursuit on both sides. And so, yes, there's a bit of mystery about God. Why? So we would chase after him. But he doesn't make himself hard to find. And so in that sense, God says, yes, here I'm revealing to you who I am and who Jesus is so that you're left, for those of you who have done the chasing, you're left with no choice but to say, okay, this is true, will I believe? And that's where I think God wants us to be. And so yes, in that sense, sure, if you want to bring geometry into Jesus, that's fine. So it's a geometric proof. Love those reasons why Jesus had to be born of God. You shared in a sermon a little while ago that Jesus had to be born of Mary because heritage is passed through the mother, so his maternal parentage made him Jewish. Thank you for sharing that. I actually cut that part out because I'm like, I don't want to go too long and get into too many details, but that is correct. The reason why you're a Jew, even today, is based on who your mother is and not who your father is. And that's also another reason why Mary was the mother as a Jewish woman, passing her Jewishness down to Jesus. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that observation. And then uh, last one, and we'll, we'll move on. If Jesus claimed to be God, then would people call him God or son of God? So that's a great question. Um, so call him God or son of God? The reality is we call him both. Uh, Jesus had a number of other titles as well, in case you're curious. It's son of man, Lord, Messiah, King, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Shepherd, Lion of Judah. I mean, he has a whole bunch of names. So, I mean, I understand. I don't want to get caught up in the fact that Jesus is more than one name as being what confuses us, right? They're all names designed to express an aspect of himself. And if that's hard to understand, then it's the same way for me, right? I have multiple names. I have Frank. I have Poppy. I have, hey, Dad. You know, I have, you know, hubby, sweetheart, love of my life the most handsome and amazing man in the world. Can I continue? Yeah, the, the coolest man in the world, the sexiest man in the world. So, I mean, I have all these titles as well. So, 
But each of them defines an aspect of our nature, right? So when I'm called the, the husband and love of her life, that's my wife saying that I am in that posture as husband to her. When my kids say, you're the coolest dad, the most amazing dad in the world, which they say every single day as often as they can, then that's my, in my relationship of my being a dad to them. Does that, and so when I'm your pastor, that's the nature of our relationship. I hold different names because each one has, um, reflects a different aspect of my relationship to you. So in the same way, Jesus was the son of God and is the son of God, but he's also God, right? And so he is, there is, all of that is still true. They're just, they reflect different aspects of who he is, and even in particular with Jesus, who he is at a certain point in time as well. So, uh, so yeah, that's a great question. I just respond and say, yes, he is absolutely both, and praise God that he is. So let me close up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to have Larry come up and close out our time with some announcements and bring him up a second time. Might be overkill, but we love the man. So Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for this time, for the opportunity to come into your presence, to know that you love us, and more than that, you've chosen us. You were part of your family, and that being part of this family is amazing because it means that we're in right relationship with not only the God of the universe, but with the God of the universe who has come into the world as flesh and saved us through his death, burial, and resurrection, death on the cross, burial, and resurrection. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, that we are your treasure. We are a people of your own possession created for good deeds. And Lord, we want to fulfill our destiny, the destiny that you set out for us, Lord. We want to fulfill our God-given potential. And more than that, we want to be in this relationship with you that is intimate, personal, eternal, everlasting. Thank you that that is the hope that we have and the life that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you so much for this morning, for this time, for these saints. We praise your holy name, and we pray to you and thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.